All right, everybody, we're going to get started because it's after nine and um, we've got to stick with our, uh, our schedule. So let me pray for us and then we will get, we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for this beautiful morning and we thank you for this church. We thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood to save for yourself a people corporately, but also we thank you for our individual salvation and you reaching down and saving rebels and having mercy on us. Uh, and so I thank you for your mercy. I pray now also for the mercy of your Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us to change our hearts that we might walk in your ways uh, more consistently because that means glory for you, but it also means joy and wholeness and satisfaction for us. So I pray that you would help us to hear your word today and even wrestle with and be willing to accept the things that are hard to accept and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the relationship series. You all know that. We are now in the part where we are talking about godly womanhood, growing in godly womanhood. We just finished up the section on godly manhood, and here we are talking about womanhood. And I'm not a woman, as you know. And by God's wisdom, he has so assigned ladies to disciple ladies. This is Titus 2, women to disciple women. And so you will be experiencing that, ladies, at some level, hopefully. But also he has entrusted the teaching of the Word of God to uh, leadership in the church, being uh, men, being elders. And so this is my task now before me to teach you about what godly womanhood looks like from Scripture. But you also want to be hearing that from godly ladies themselves, and that's built into the scripture. Titus 2 is one of the primary texts to talk about that. So I also, though, I am going to read from some ladies, so as to reinforce biblical principles with what women are saying, godly women are saying. And so that is the task before me this morning. So let's get right into it. I'm excited about this. Uh, subject because of the first point, um, among other things. But the first point is simply this, the goodness of womanhood. The goodness of womanhood. And we need to emphasize this in our contemporary culture because women, in some segments of our culture, are seen as mere objects for men rather than to be persons treated with respect and honor and great care, because you are created in God's image. And in God's glorious wisdom, He not only created a man, but He created women. He created the woman. And being married to a woman, now Amy and I are both sinners, and we have our conflicts, and we work through those, but I can step back and say, it is so great that God created women, that he got, God created the woman. Uh, the womanhood is truly a good gift from the Lord. And so I personally am grateful. I have sisters. I grew up with three much older sisters. I have nieces. I have a daughter. I have uh, a wife. I have a mom. And I can tell you from experience that Women are glorious. I mean, let's just be frank about it, okay? And we need to thank God for that, for that difference. And so, Scripture affirms this. Uh, uh, Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men are created in God's image and women are created in God's image. It is good that you are a woman. And we are so thankful to God for giving women to this earth. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. This is where God's going to create the woman. God brings out the animals that had been created and so that Adam himself could see that there's no helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and had brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. He needed to see with his own eyes and feel with his own heart and understand with his own mind that these animals are great, but there's just something missing here. They're not like me. And so God creates someone like him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he didn't create another man out of the dust of the ground like he had created Adam. He takes from Adam and creates a woman out of Adam. And this is his response. This is at last, this is poetry. He's, this, is, this is enthralled. He is enthralled. He is stunned. He is overtaken by the glory of this person now standing in front of him. This is at last bone of my bones, so she is like me, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Okay, that's the language there. And so here's the man, and the woman is taken from him in order that she might fit together with him perfectly in every possible way, in every conceivable way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Because she was taken out of him, now they are coming back together. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. So I want us to see very clearly that the woman is made in God's image, that she is a gift, that, she is, that her womanhood is good, that she is like the man, in that she is an image bearer, but she is very much different from the man. And that is a good and glorious and wonderful difference that we should all exalt and thank God for. She was created as the perfect complement to Adam the perfect complement to the man, and created, as this will be, become significant as we work through here, she was created as his helper. There was not a helper fit for him, so God creates for the man a helper. Um, okay, let's move along from there. I'm, I'm, in, I'm anticipating questions, so I'm going to leave room for questions, and some of the Things I want to say now will probably be covered as we move through the rest of the material. So the next point is, so we see the goodness of womanhood. We need to establish that. By, their, by your very nature as being made in God's image, as being handcrafted by God himself, womanhood is good. You have value inherently that must be respected by other image bearers. All right, the calling of godly womanhood. The calling of godly womanhood. Now, you might notice the first point is that she is a helper to her husband. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not married, Derek, so why are you making this the first point? Because I'm trying to be faithful to the biblical narrative and to the biblical text and to recognize the, the reason why the woman was created, to be a helper to her husband. That's why she was created. And so we can't ignore that and skip over that we have to affirm that. And so here's her first calling. And we'll talk about how that relates to being single and, and hopefully answer your questions and, and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, this is, what, this is what Scripture teaches. She is a helper to her husband. That's why she was created. And Paul makes this explicit as he's looking back upon Genesis, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's looking back at Genesis and he's going to make a statement. We've already covered these things, so I don't need to go back and really reiterate them too strongly, but he's going to make this point as he's looking back to the Genesis account, and this is the issue of head coverings in Corinth, and we're not entirely sure what these head coverings were, but the point was simply that there needed to be some recognition of the place of the husband as the head of the family. And Paul's going to ground this like he does his argument for male leadership in the church. He's going to ground this in the creation order. 
Verse 7, for a man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We're not entirely sure uh, what that means. So I'm going to go to verse 11 in a moment, but I first want to point out that Paul is not suggesting that the woman is created as some sort of slave servant, but she was created as a helper, implying that the man is the one leading, now going back to Genesis, the one leading this family in a God-glorifying direction. We saw that there's significance in the created order. He was created first. He was entrusted with the divine commandment first. He was entrusted with guarding and keeping and, uh, keeping and guarding and working the garden first. And then the woman is brought along and Paul sees significance in that in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 in terms of uh, the man being the one designated as the, leaders, the leader in the church. But he also sees significance for it in terms of the woman's function as the helper. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. In other words, the man is not the woman's helper. Okay? The woman is the man's helper. He is the one who has received from God the divine commandment, leading the family in a God-glorifying direction, and she joins him in helping him fulfill that commandment, fulfill that calling. So she is a helper to her husband, and then in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, that is re-emphasizing the reality that the man is designated by God as the head of the home. This is not domination. This is not domineering. This is not abuse. This is godly direction that the woman, because of her design by God, wants to follow. And it also turns out, ladies, because of the fall, because of Eve's in Adam and Eve's sin, because of the fall and the curse that God leveled on creation, it will also be the case that this will be one of the hardest things for you to do because it will be against your natural inclinations. Now, the greatest temptation, one of the greatest temptations, if not the greatest temptation for the woman will be to usurp the leadership that God has entrusted to the man. And the, one of the greatest temptations for the man will be to be passive in the face of responsibility and not lead his wife. But nevertheless, this is what you were created to be, a helper to her husband. The calling of godly womanhood is to be a helper to her husband. So write down your questions, be thinking of them now, and we will get to them in 25 minutes. All right. She is a bearer and nurturer of life. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, had some good questions about this. And one of the things you see in terms of the, the curse and how it's brought against the, the woman specifically is she's cursed in her calling of bearing children. There's going to be pain in childbirth. That's how she's going to bear the curse. But nevertheless, what's pointed out here and what's pointed out just by nature is that the woman has been outfitted by your very physical nature to bear, not only bear, but to nurture children. Your body was made for it. Your body was made to not only bring children into the world, but to feed them from your own body in a very intimate and precious way. So you have been made by God and designed by God, outfitted by God in a very particular, specific, and sweet way to nurture human life. Women, by and large, obviously there's ex there are exceptions, but women, by and large, just have a natural ability and inclination to care for life and care for children. And my wife who just walked in is a great example of this. So um, it's amazing to me that after a day that's been hard with the kids, uh, Colton's been really excitable and running all over the house and causing problems to the two other siblings. And Ellie's been whiny all day long because she's really tired. And Easton's having trouble because he's having trouble communicating what he wants and, and so on. And, and it's just a hard day and Amy goes to bed tired and, then, and, and frustrated and it's just been hard. And then 
a few minutes laying in bed, she'll start talking about how much she loves and cares for and these, these kids. And it just like the, the love, the love never stops. And I'm sitting back going like, man, I'm ready to just build a cage for them outside and just put them all in there. We'll, we'll, let, we'll throw food in and that'll be good enough. And she's like, oh, our kids, will you go check on our kids? Will you? I'm like, you just had the hardest day. Will you go check on our kids, make sure they're okay? And I walk down the hall and check each room and make sure they're still breathing and all this stuff. And, right? So that's, that's, just, that's just her, right? And I don't think that's just Amy. I think that's just, that's just womanhood. And it also comes out because we have these little guinea pigs. So Amy just likes to care for life, period. We have these guinea pigs, and they're the most spoiled guinea pigs in the history of domesticated animals. And I'm not kidding. Because she cares about them, doesn't want them to die, and wants to make sure they're okay and well-fed. Well, they're well-fed. They get dandelion greens and romaine lettuce and filtered water. Well, they, didn't get, they don't get filtered water anymore. We, we stopped that. We thought that's over the top. But anyways, but that's just, that's just, she just wants to care for life, particularly uh, human life and the kids. But this is what the woman was made for. This is the calling. And this is borne out, too, you see, with with ladies who are not married. There's a natural bent and inclination towards caring for children. And it, it, it is the case that women, by and large, are, are just better teachers of children. You just, you just get them better. You're able to communicate to them better. You're able to get down on their level better than guys can. And this doesn't excuse guys from doing that kind of work, but it does indicate that there's a specific design that God has built into women. This ability to, to care for Children. And I give you several passages here that are simply indications throughout the Scripture that this is the case. And, to, and it's the expected situation. It's what is expected. You see in Exodus, the ladies caring for children and for caring for Moses. Um, let's see what Matthew 14.21 is. Now I forget why I wrote that one down. Let's see, Matthew 14.21. But what you see is the assumption is that throughout the scriptures that this is the case. Uh, Matthew 14, 21. Oh, yes, yeah, so this is why I, I had this here. So what you see is um, a perfect example here is when Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? You always hear Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, it's probably more like 20,000 because... The, verse 21, and those who were eight were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So throughout Scripture, and here being an indication, the, the men are grouped together, and then the women and children are grouped together. So it was 5,000 men, and then however many women and children were there. And so all I'm doing is pointing out that the assumption is that in terms of grouping people together, and this is even the case at least earlier in our society, you know, who gets off the, the, the sinking ship first? Is it the men? Well, we have stories from the, uh, not the Titanic. Um, what was the one? Which one? Dead Wake. I'm thinking of that book. You guys know that book by Eric Larson? Well, anyways, uh, that ship went down, um, and there are stories of, of men who are armed on that ship, threatening even women and children so that they could get on to the, to the, boat, the safety boats. And we all recognize this, that that's just horrible. Why? Well, because you just know that it's the women and children that should be getting on to the, the, the safety boats first, the rescue boats first. And here is uh, an example that, that is even recognized in the scripture itself that there are men and then there are women and children, not in terms of inferiority of any sort, but simply that that's how women are seen, as the ones who are caring for the children. Why? Because you're just designed by God to be really, really good at it. Um, 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 14. So, actually, let's back up verse 9. So this is Paul's instructions to Timothy about how to handle widows in the church. If you have widows who can be cared for by their 
families, then let them be cared for by their families. That's where the first support should be coming from. But if you have a widow who's over a certain age, namely 60, and she has zero resources to provide for, then the church needs to uh, put her on uh, some sort of en enrollment here and make sure that she's provided for financially. Otherwise, and particularly in this culture, she would have been destitute if the church wasn't caring for her. But this is how they would assess the situation. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has, been brought, up, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And notice a couple of things here. The first is that Paul designates that domestic work as good works. You want to be rich in good works, ladies? When you're married, that's how you do it. That's one of the primary spheres of good works is this domestic showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, uh, and that would be in the home, uh, raising children, and so on. These are the good works that you are to be about. But also I want us to show that Paul just says, if she has brought up children, it, it's assumed that she would be the one who is doing the primary caring for the children in, in Paul's mind. But verse 11, he'll reaffirm this. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away to Christ, uh, from Christ they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going uh, from house to house, and not only idlers but gossips and busybodies saying that uh, what they should not. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So what he's saying is, is one of the primary ways you keep these younger widows from veering off the path of obedience to Christ is to have them remarry, bear children, care for those children, and manage the home. So in Paul's mind, he recognizes that it is the woman's design and calling to do that very thing that she has been equipped by God specifically to be the bearer and nurturer of life. You are made for it. Okay. Now, I want to say something here because we need to respond to how our society uh, has commented and taken a position on this and, and even how some in the church have. Okay. This is being strongly challenged, has been strongly challenged, by the feminist movement, but also by those in the church who see this as a demeaning calling. That, in other words, that a woman is able to do more than just raise children, and she should be seen as more than just the bearer and, and nurturer of life. And certainly this is not to limit the woman's capacities or competencies. That's not at all what Paul is doing. But we do need to realize that raising children and being a mother to children is exceedingly hard. It's exceedingly taxing. It requires a massive amount of creativity. It requires a massive amount of, long, uh, of longevity, of resilience, of love, of time, of thankless service. And frankly, it's probably the most difficult thing in the world. And I'm not so sure that the push to go back to work for some ladies isn't an escape to do something more easy. Because it is exceedingly hard to raise children. And so that's, I've already, you already know my position. I do not believe that Scripture prohibits women absolutely from working, even after they've had children. And we'll look at Proverbs 31. We'll walk through it and we'll be honest and fair with that text. But we do need to ask the question as to why the pushback for this calling of godly womanhood to be the bearer and nurture of life, why the pushback that says that in order for a woman to demonstrate her worth, she must be able to go back to work and prove that worth in a corporate setting. God has equipped her to be a bearer and nurture of life. It is hard. Just comparing it to your work situation right now, I know many of you ladies are working. You're, you're highly competent in your jobs. You're, you're excellent in your work, and, and, and praise God that you're glorifying God in your jobs. But think about it this way. Raising children 
oftentimes you get very little thanks from the, the three little projects that you're, you're working on. <laughs> and your projects aren't completed for about 20 plus years. And sometimes there is an indefinite period of completion. You get no financial remuneration for your work, at least directly. And so you can see how, in contrast to uh, the kind of work where you are getting regular thanks and encouragement, where you are getting a paycheck, and where your projects can be completed in certain time frames, and you can feel a sense of satisfaction, you can see why it'd be easy to say, hey, that looks a lot more attractive than being a servant every single day. And yet, God has given you the privilege and opportunity and the glory of, of doing just that. And so... She is a bearer, the calling of godly woman is she's a bearer and nurturer of life. Number three, she is a teacher of women and children. I've already mentioned that just naturally, by and large, again, there are exceptions, there are always general exceptions, but that doesn't defeat the rule, it doesn't defeat the reality, it just shows that there are exceptions and we do need to talk about them, but generally speaking, she's a, a better teacher of children than, than the man is. Uh, she's a teacher of other women, so ladies, you are, if you are gifted in teaching, you do need to be exercising that gift. In terms of the mixed congregation of men and women, it's the men who are entrusted with that teaching, but in terms of women teaching other women, boy, we really need women teaching women, because there's only so much I can do as a, as a pastor. We need godly older ladies teaching younger ladies how to walk with the Lord in the calling that God has given them, how to walk in godly femininity. So you have a high calling in this regard, and something I hope that each of you ladies aspire to. You Right now you want to be under the, the uh, guidance and teaching and counsel of an older woman, but perhaps you have someone younger under you right now that you're, you're teaching. There's some of you who are serving in the youth right now, and uh, well, I guess not right now because that would be in the other class and you're not in here. So, well, there are some over there that are, but nevertheless, you can still have influence in the life of some young ladies, but this is a high calling and a valuable calling, and frankly, our church will not be as healthy as it could be if the ladies are not teaching other ladies. You know what it's like to be a woman. Guess what? I don't, and I never will, and I never will ever know what it's like from a female perspective. You, you, you can't ask me to be. You, you can't ask a man to see it from your perspective. We, it's not possible. It's utterly impossible. There, there are elements where you can see, yes, I can see from where you're sitting that this would be hard and so on, but in terms of seeing it from a female perspective, absolute ontological impossibility because I'm not a woman. So we need the women of this church to be teaching other women to take that ministry seriously and to see it as a valuable, vital ministry. Okay, so she's a teacher of women. That's Titus 2, 3, and 4. Um, so as not to skip over any texts and just have you trust me. Um, verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the ladies have all these responsibilities, and the guys, it just says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, because that's about all they can handle. So um, moving right along. She is a manager of the home. She is a manager of the home. You want to talk about a calling that requires a huge amount of creativity and, and ingenuity and resourcefulness. It is to manage the home. You look at this Proverbs 31 woman, and she's got all kinds of things going on, demonstrating all kinds of skill. And I want to, um, and I want to, well, I'm, I'll go through this just briefly, and then I want to give you this quote from a lady named Dorothy Patterson. But she's a manager of the home. What it, look at what it, this woman is like. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's a diligent woman. She's, she is like ships of the merchant, which brings her food from afar. She's thoughtful, creative, engaging, thinking about what's best for her family. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So she wants to make sure her family is well provided for, and she is diligent. She is someone who works hard, 
and gets up early and doesn't, where does it say, eat the, the bread of idleness, which is what he'll say later. She considers a field and buys it. So she even has a business mind here. She considers a field and buys it. In the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. I, probably because it, literally making, literally that's what, it's not figurative here. Like literally making her arms strong because one of the things you have to do is carry kids all, all over the place. But also in this day and age, there's a lot of manual labor that she would have had to do in order to keep the, the, the home going. Things that we that we have machines now to do for us, washing machines and so on. But she's literally making her arms strong because she works hard. She's diligent, forward thinking. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So she does have, a, it seems like a business she's running out of the home here. It, that's gonna become more clear in a moment. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches her hands out to the needy. So she's rich in good works, not only within her home primarily, but outside of her home, thinking of ways to bless others, namely the poor. She reaches the poor and needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for her household is clothed in scarlets because she's diligent to buy and create and put things together before the seasons hit and not scrambling all at once at the, when it does, when the cold hits. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, so she is diligent, so she's actually able to enjoy the fruits of her labors, and she provides some nice, luxurious bed coverings for herself. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Verse 24, uh, so her husband gets to enjoy a good reputation because of her faithfulness, diligence, and godliness, which is a huge blessing. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So here she's running a little... Uh, business. She's making money out of a business she's put together in the home and work that she's doing. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She lasts at the time to come. She's trusting the Lord. She doesn't fear, so she can laugh heartily about what's going to happen. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks ways to the well, way, well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. There are a few things that will grate against a godly husband than a lazy wife. So ladies, be cultivating diligence. And guys, be cultivating it too, because there are probably a few things that bug a woman than a lazy man. In fact, I know that because uh, I've, I've heard that kind of thing before. So, uh, but this godly woman, she does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have, women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates, namely her children, but also the other things that she has done will speak for themselves. So she is a manager of the home. Again, this requires great diligence, creativity, resourcefulness, industriousness, planning. I mean, it's just a huge job. And you've seen these kinds of interesting uh, uh, articles that, that talk about the financial worth of the, the stay-at-home mom, you know, she's, they start laying out all the various roles she fills in the house and what those would be worth in, in real life. You know, she's a chauffeur, she's a cook, she's a manager of, uh, of the home, she is a, uh, she procures goods and all these various things. And you know they come up with this number that if she, these are all literal jobs that she had, she would be making upwards of one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. Well, whatever. Uh, the point is simply that there are so many things and so many skills that the woman has to apply in managing the home that this idea that a woman is wasting her skills in in the home is is totally against what what Scripture would say and what God has designed. And I just want to read you a couple of the things that this lady named Dorothy Patterson has said, because they're really powerful. The first one is I want, she wants to emphasize how important it is for the, the woman to see the home and when she's married as her uh, primary calling and why this is a, a blessing by the way God has designed it. Now quoting her, quote, when a wife goes to work outside the home, often her husband and children go through cult culture shock. Suddenly, the husband has added to his vocational work increased family assignments. He is frustrated over the increase of his 
uh, uh, own assignments and guilty over his wife's increased fatigue and extended hours to keep up at home. God did give the husband the responsibility of providing for the family. To sabotage his meeting that responsibility is often a debilitating blow to the man personally and to the marriage. A woman's career can easily serve as a surrogate husband as during employment hours she is ruled by her employer's preferences. Because the wife loses much of her flexibility with the receipt of a paycheck, a husband must bend and adapt his schedule for emergencies with the children, visits to the home by repairman, etc. This leaves two employers without totally committed employees and children without a primary caretaker, utterly devoted to their personal needs and nurturing. Many a little further down, many women see the, still see the paycheck as an inadequate trade for the sights and sounds and tastes of home, though some see the pair, their paychecks as representing uh, independence and achievement. To be bound to paychecks requires in exchange some formally allotted or time formally allotted to work for the family in private personal ways. There's this, now this is an important qualification. This is not to say that there are never times when a woman should seek employment outside her home. Nevertheless, we are coming to a day when a woman's employment outside the, home is, outside the home is a rule rather than the exception, leaving no one to give primary attention to the home and to producing the next generation. And then she finishes her, her uh, article or her chapter in the book with this. This is just kind of a summary of the beauty and the goodness of, of what God has entrusted to the woman. Homemaking, being a full-time wife and mother, is not a destructive drought of usefulness, but an overflowing oasis of opportunity. It is not a dreary cell to contain one's talents and skills, but a brilliant catalyst to channel creativity and energies into meaningful work. It is not a rope for binding one's productivity in the marketplace, but reins for guiding one's prosperity in the home. It is not oppressive and a oppressive restraint of intellectual prowess for the community, but a release of wise instruction to your own household. It is not the bitter assignment of inferiority to your person, but the bright assurance of ingenuity of God's plan for the complementary of the sexes, especially as it is worked out in God's plan for marriage. It is neither limitation of gifts available nor stinginess in distributing the benefits of those gifts, but rather the multiplication of a mother's legacy to the generations to come and the generous bestowal to all God meant a mother to give to those he entrusted to her care. That's a very, very positive and I would say biblical view of womanhood in the home and motherhood in the home. It is a place that requires great ingenuity, creativity, skill, and competence. And it should be highly valued by men. You might be thinking, well, Derek, uh, and she's already alluded to it in those passages, you might be thinking, well, Derek, you know, it seems like you're saying, and I will say this in a moment, uh, where you reemphasize it, that you're just saying that, that leadership is, is primarily given to to the men, what about the women? I think influence has been given to the woman. Leadership to institutional leadership to men, influence to women. Now obviously there's overlap because obviously leaders are going to have influence. But let me ask you a question. Apart from Jesus and his word, who in my life do you think has the greatest influence? Who do you think it is? Amy. In our kids' lives, who do you think has the greatest influence? The, the person who is spending most of the time with them. Shaping them to know and love God and shaping their character for the future so that those three little people will someday have godly influence in their own lives, in their own homes, in their own work, and in their own society. Tremendous amount of responsibility and influence. A high, huge, wonderful, glorious calling. Okay. She is engaged in vital worship, fellowship, ministry, and learning from God's Word. Let me say that again. The godly woman is engaged in vital worship, fellowship, ministry, and learning from God's Word. Miriam in Exodus 15.20 led the women out in worship. I believe she used tambourines. So, lady, no, just kidding. Um, uh, that next one, verses uh, 
verse 38, 18. It should be 18 and not 28, so you can correct that. Exodus 38, 18. Um, all throughout the Old and New Testaments. No, 20. What did I, what do I have there? 15, 20, and then 38 what? Oh, it should be 28, rather. Should be, should be 28. Nope, shouldn't be that one either. So we'll, we'll find out what it is someday. We will find out, but it's similar. Let's see, 35, 25. I wrote that down. I didn't write it in your notes. Um, and every skillful, verse 25, every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. This was contributions to the tabernacle and the, the instructions that God had given to Moses to build the tabernacle, and there were women involved in the building and the, the producing of this tabernacle, so they were not kept out of that. They were seen as highly valuable and needed. Um, in Judges 4.4, we have a prophetess who was a judge named Deborah. In 1 Samuel 2, 1-10, you see Hannah there, a godly woman, and we, uh, Scripture records her prayer and her uh, rejoicing over the Lord. Huldah in 2 Kings 22 was a prophetess, which means that she, that God spoke through her. Nehemiah 8.2, you had women and men together learning from the law, and this would have been unique not only in the ancient Near East, but as you come into the New Testament in the time in the, Mediter the Mediterranean area at the time, this would have been just unheard of that women were uh, seen as equal learners with men, but it's always been the case with uh, God's people. Uh, Matthew 27, 55, women ministered to Jesus. Luke 1, 42, you have uh, Elizabeth, who has uh, readily accepted her calling to bear the forerunner to the Messiah, and she's there ministering to Mary and rejoicing with Mary. And then you have in Luke 2, 36 through 37, Anna, who is a prophetess, who is serving God in the temple. And let me just say something about the book of Luke. What you have in the book of Luke, the, especially the first and second chapters, is a contrast between the faithlessness of some male characters and the faithfulness of some female characters in the book of Luke. God, Luke exalting uh, women's godliness in his, the very beginning of his letter. That's just, that comes across it's Simeon who, or um, it's uh, who is it? Zechariah who is, who is uh, unbelieving, and his wife Elizabeth, or his wife Elizabeth who conceives, but he's unbelieving. And then it's Mary who is the one who readily receives God's call on her life to bear the Messiah. And then you, Anna is another one. She is a godly woman engaged in real, vital ministry. Mary and Martha. Here's the, Jesus says that Mary was listening to and receiving the word, and that was a good portion. Martha's running around all over the place, scatterbrained, and not recognizing that right now you need to be sitting at the, Jesus is here, sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say. And Jesus is freely teaching women. Again, you might be thinking, that doesn't mean anything to you because you've been receiving spiritual instruction your whole life long or most of your life or ever since you've been in the church, it's never been kept from you. That wouldn't have been the case in this, this culture. So Jesus is teaching women. He's engaging with women. He's opening the doors of the kingdom of women. And it just, this is, would have not been uh, culturally, I don't want to say accepted, but culturally normal. Let's see. Oh, uh, John 20. Mary is the first one to see Jesus at the resurrection. Acts 1.14, Mary is among the, the believers. Uh, Acts 8.3, women are among those who are being persecuted. So they're standing up for their faith and being persecuted. And then 1 Corinthians 7.34, the calling there is to be uh, the single woman, to be holy in body and soul, devoting herself to the cares of the Lord and the concerns of the Lord. And then you find women in Philippians 4, 3, helping Paul. And then 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 11, we see that, that widow who had been rich in good works all of her life. 
And I just want to give you an example of a few women acting courageously because Alice asked about this. What about courage? Can women act courageously? Well, of course they can. And you have a number of examples of that very thing in the scriptures. For example, the daughters of Zelophehad went to the rulers of the day to say, listen, our dad has died, and therefore, for that reason, because he has no son, we're, his name will not be passed on, and his inheritance will pass away forever. So let us receive the inheritance that his, son, a son's other, his sons otherwise would have had. And so then a new law gets created for the rules of inheritance that, the, that daughters can inherit when there is no son. And that would have required a, a lot of courage on the part of these uh, daughters to go and actually engage with the leaders at the time to get this to happen. Jael in Judges 4, you guys know the story of Jael? You know this story? How she pierced, well, let's just read it, I guess. Judges chapter 4. So, we'll start in verse 12. Uh, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of uh, Abnoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hira, uh, Hirosheth, we'll just say Hirosheth, to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go down before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his army, all of his army before Barak, by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth, Hagoyim, there it is, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, and turn aside to come to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. It's very hospitable. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Where is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Like, we wouldn't let our kids watch that kind of movie. Right? Am I right? This scene, of the, if this is in the movie, we're not watching that scene. We're fast-forwarding or getting vid-angel or something because this is gruesome. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sister of Jael, went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there sister, uh, lay Sister dead with a tent peg in his temple. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, and so on. So I just want you to see here is uh, a woman acting Courageously. That would have required a great amount of courage. Faith in God, right? So she performed this great deed. The Shunanite woman who had to go and request after she had been told to leave the country due to the famine, she had go to request to have her land be given back. This would have been challenging and required a fair amount of courage. This is uh, first, Second Kings chapter 8, and she goes and she gets her land back. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was a courageous woman, I believe, because she was told about something that was unexpected, even kind of strange, amazing, wonderful, but you have to anticipate as a, as a young woman, think about this, you realize now, if the, the Holy, if the Messiah is going to be conceived in me, then what is that going to imply with everyone else who sees me pregnant? that you've been messing around. So, in order to receive this calling, you have to be willing to courageously step forward in doing the will of God, regardless of what some people might think. The prostitute anointed Jesus' feet would have been courageous, having to go in among all these righteous religious men 
and anoint Jesus' feet and show him love in such an extravagant way. The women who sought to anoint Jesus' body after he died, that was very dangerous. They sh- I mean, conventional wisdom would have said, don't do that, because that would have been dangerous. All the soldiers and people around wanting to make sure that this whole conspiracy of this itinerant preacher who just died, make sure nothing happens there. So they would have put themselves in danger by wanting to go and anoint Jesus' body. That's courageous. So I wanted to just give you this, these few examples to make sure to round out and give a good balance to all that we're saying about womanhood. It is a glorious calling to be a woman. And we've, we've emphasized the aspect of home life and married life because that's what Scripture so much talks about. And next week, we're gonna, I'm going to see if you have any questions and then we'll be done. Next week, we'll finish the second side of this page and, and we'll talk about the following week, the character of womanhood, and we will answer, hopefully, the questions that you have about singleness and what we've talked about. So, we've got five minutes for questions. Any questions before we get going for today? Yeah, James. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would see that the woman's management of the home is still under the the headship of the husband. So uh, she manages it so that it would be, it would be in terms of delegation, I think it would be a reversal for her to say, and now I'm assigning you to do such and such. Okay. Uh, So and here's here's all your tasks. Now, there actually, I think, is a way of of doing that. And, And Amy and I have have those things happen where she needs things done, and, and I'm, I'm happy to do them because I'm, I, there are ways that I want to serve her too and lighten her load, and that's legitimate and that's good. Um, but in terms of her management, it still should be seen as under the headship of the, the husband. But that being the case, I think it's entirely legitimate to manage it, so give Amy the freedom to manage it how she wants to manage it, whether that means you know, using some money to hire help or uh, getting, getting the groceries delivered rather than picking them up or whatever it might be. And so in terms of the practical aspect, the practical necessity, or I should say the, the practical aspect of it, there's a necessity where um, there are certain things. I don't think I've ever said, Amy, you must do such and such, right? But by practical necessity, there are certain things that she does most often because I simply can't. And so, but there are things that where I try to help her with in order to free up her and, 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 and give her some relief and so on. And so what happens a lot is we're just, we're just talking about that a lot. And, and what I found, and this actually came up recently, is Amy so likes her uh, and enjoys her domain and sphere of, of calling that if I try to get in there and micromanage, she's not a fan, okay, right? Right? This, just hap- this just happened, right? So, um, so it's actually good leadership on my part to actually give her everything she needs to do her job and then to step back. And if she needs me to go run to the store and grab this or do that, then she, she asks and I'm happy to do it. But this comes through a lot of communication and, and, um, and now involving the kids too to help out. That's a big part of it. So we involve, you know, right after dinner, the kid, Amy's not left. This is recently we had to change this. Amy's not left cleaning up, but all, everyone's involved now in cleaning up and making sure that everything gets put away and clean up right after dinner and so on. So it takes five minutes rather than taking Amy 25 minutes. So that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, Addison.
Right. 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 Yeah, you don't want to say stuff like that. Yeah, you probably don't want you probably don't want to say stuff like that. Yeah. I never said that before, but Uh yes, question back here. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say in that, I don't know how to answer that, uh, a hypothetical like that, because what we are, what we are given in Proverbs uh, 31 is the picture of a woman who is creating some sort of financial provision for the home. Um, in that society, it would have been, you know, he, he could have been a soldier, um, he could have been some sort of leader and beginning uh, receiving compensation for that, and so likely the, the one who is providing primarily for the home. And we're not, it's, there's no indication of whether or not she is making, she's providing more for the home than, than he is. So I think rather than saying what happens if, what would happen if Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman, let's, and if, maybe this is your question, so, so forgive me. So let's just say this does happen in a particular situation. And we saw it happen at our church back in 9th and 0. So I'll just speak from experience and you can test it against scripture. Uh, we knew of a couple. He was a fireman. She was at home with the kids, and she started a little business from the home. Well, she was quite the skilled entrepreneur, as it turns out, and she soon doubled his salary. I, I know the numbers, love. You remember? You know who I'm talking about? She soon doubled his salary by what she was making. And they are now divorced. Now, I'm not saying that it was because she doubled his salary, but th what happened was is it slowly became clear who was the, the provider of that family, and not only the provider, but the manager of the home, and his, his uh, function and existence was slowly just pushed to the margins. And uh, there was more going on there, obviously, but in our experience, that's, that happened, that literally happened, and so, that doesn't mean that it will always happen that way, but if, if, if it is the case that the man has been called and equipped by God to be the, the, the provider of, the material provider for the home, to the degree that he is pushed to the margins, to that degree is he going to sense um, a real blow to his manhood and his calling. And so, um, again, men and women, husband and wives can work this out, but we want to make sure that we are supporting and encouraging the role that, that in the assignments and the design that God has, has given us. Um, and the man doesn't want to be proud and, and arrogant, but it's not proud and arrogant, I don't think, to, to want to do what God's called us to do. So, but anyway, so that was our experience. I've had that one experience, and um, we've also had experiences where I've also had pastoral experiences where the woman was making much, much, much more than the, uh, the husband and in that case too, it didn't, it certainly didn't make him a better leader uh, in the home. So, yeah. So anyways, you can, you can test that. Yeah, love, go ahead. I just think in the Proverbs 31 woman, it's just one of the little things she does. Thank you, yeah, good. And I think a lot of women feel like they've got to find some way of making money out of Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The primary thing is to manage the home, help your husband raise your children. And if you happen to be really good at bidding and you can sell something, great. Then use that money to then buy a new rug for the home. Like it's it's to help the home. Mm -hmm. It's not to yeah, this business so you can outdo your husband. Yeah. It's just one of the one of the many things that just might happen as you are seeking to manage your your home and your your life. Proverbs 31 example will 
will not see the outcomes of husband, and it will become a problem. I think she will view it as something that is meant to support and help their family, not to compete with the husband. So a, a godly woman, I don't think that will happen, that she will outthink her husband. Yeah, someone hand a mic to Amy so she can drop it, okay? <laughs> I think that's, that's an excellent answer to end on, and why well, I'm such a happy husband. So there we have it. Um, any, we'll get to the next part next week, okay? So bring your questions. Next week's going to be even more controversial than what I've said today. So let me pray for you, and uh, you can have some fellowship before church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for the questions, for the uh, listening that, and the attentiveness. God, I just pray that these... Uh, truths would get deep into our hearts. Help us to live together well as men and women. Help us to know our callings, to glorify you in them, to treat each other with honor and respect and dignity and love. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.